Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking in with Alan Davison. Alan is uh, in the School of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Technology. Um, hi Alan, thank you for coming on. Great to be here, Bade. Thanks for having mm -hmm. me on. So, I mean, we'd spoken a bit last time you were on about, we were talking about the woke stuff and how it's, you know, more in relation to Islam, but you'd read, you have an article recently called Bursting the Bubble and why the sense-making institutions must challenge the dominant narrative. Now, this is something I've been kind of saying for a while. It's just the the institutions that have are supposed to be giving us, like are supposed to be protecting us from the madness, have themselves been taken over. Um, I keep going back to a Hitchens quote, or where we're not so much of a quote. He keeps talking about the, the man for all, uh, like the play of man for all seasons. And he talks about Roper. You know, and then Thomas More asked Roper, are you going to tear down all the laws in England just to get the devil? And Roper's like, yes, I will. And that's that's what I feel like's happened, at least in Canada and the United States. I mean, you know, people kind of joked about the CDC putting out the recommendations for COVID vaccinations by race. And they're like, oh, well, you see, they, they withdrew it the next day. Everything's fine. But, you know, you now you've got in Minnesota, you've got doctors having to take an oath to DEI. And like it's like my whole thing about this when I first saw it is you're not going to have any protections when things get really bad. And now things are like you're starting to have a lot of overcorrections and we don't have anything to protect us. Yeah, look, I suspect that things are chugging along more or less in step here in Australia. Mm -hmm. Although sometimes it seems that Canada's ahead of us, indeed ahead of the rest of the world from listening to your oh. podcasts and your guests. Um, so, yeah, look, I think I think we're chugging along the same way. And the point of the essay I wrote is to really signal that these sense-making institutions, that is, the, the institutions that are trusted because of the supposed expertise or because of their supposed commitment to present facts, evidence, arguments, and make sense of the complex world around us, if we begin to suspect that they're crumbling or they're not upholding that absolutely critical social function that they have, then obviously that has downstream effects for the quality of public debate, how things get covered in the media, uh, how arguments and people and perspectives are framed or demonised. So really, we just rely, and perhaps too naively, on our universities and our media outlets to uphold their part of the deal, which is to provide us with the information we need and contrary perspectives. So we've got a sense of, of you know, the average listener, the average reader, the average person who hasn't got time to research every individual thing, go back to primary sources, looking mm -hmm. for data, et cetera. They're providing you with a fair and reasonable representation of the complexity of an issue. And once we start seeing the signs that those institutions like universities aren't upholding that part of the deal, and of course, they're very closely tied with the way the media covers it. Media goes to specialist academics to get their advice on how to cover stories. Then I think we're, we're, we're in a serious situation. Yeah. And I mean, the thing about the media too, it's not that so much that they also go to specialist academics. It's now... If you want to work at the New York Times and you want to work at the Washington Post, um, you know, or like the Herald in Australia or something like that, 
you have to have gone to Harvard or Yale or Stanford or, you know, equivalents in Australia to get jobs in these places. So they're also siloed off into that way of thinking. Um, again, like the, the two people's work I keep bringing up is uh, Zach Goldberg did a really good job. Um, I, think, I believe it was for his PhD thesis and uh, Bachyang or Sargon's book, um, Bad News. Uh, yeah, and, which I've got an excellent book. Yeah. But I mean, it's... Again, I go back to like this this thing. Like I had I just recently spoke with Greg Lukianoff, and we were talking about this. And it was so back in the eighties when the first political correctness kind of like was really picking up. Um, and then it went back into academia, and everyone's like, "Oh, see, it got beaten back," and they never really looked at what happened. And then, you know, it went back into academia in the early nineties. By the two thousands, it was coming out again, and it was it was a lot worse, and it was a lot stronger. And it was the same thing. Like I. I there was, in, I believe, it was in 2015. It, she, her name was Melissa Click. She was a professor of media and journalism, and there was a protest going on at the University of Missouri. And she was—that's where she was teaching. A student journalist from the university came to cover the protest, and she's on video calling for Muscle to have this guy removed because she doesn't like his his viewpoint. Now she got fired. You can argue on the reasons of why she got fired, whatever. I don't even want to get into that. But again, everyone's like, oh, see, it's fixed. But I mean, that should have been alarm bells ringing off, at least at that university. Like, what's going on in our school of journalism that a professor is going to call for muscle on a, a student journalist? Or when, uh, you know, Peter Bogosian, Helen Pluckrose, and James Lindsay did the grievance studies affair. Again, alarm bells should have been ringing. But it just, it just seems to me that no one wants to look. Like, no one, you know, I... I kind of flippantly was joking with someone online that it's because academics are really bookish and they're not up for a fight, but I don't know what's going on. It just like, you know, they're, they're like, you're seeing all these things come up in front of you and you're seeing the result of it downstream, but no one wants to talk about where it's coming from. And that's an interesting point in itself, isn't it? I think, you know, in understanding the, the ecosystem around this, looking at those signals where, you know, why aren't people talking about it? Why isn't it addressed? I think they're really important clues to the sort of political economy that's behind this. Um, and I suppose one of the most insidious outcomes of this sort of culling or self-selection into elite journalism schools, into universities in some areas is that it's worse than deplatforming or cancel culture at the outcome of a dissident voice or heretic saying something. I think what's really insidious is under the radar, this self-selection that's going on that presents a false sense of um, a false sense of consensus around a series of issues because already there's been selection of the voices that are allowed or 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 given that expertise status to speak about it. So for me, the, the deplatforming thing is just sort of one pointy end of the argument. What's much more concerning is the ecosystem that's training and bringing these people through, putting them into positions of authority or respect. Uh, and that that's really the thing that should be concerning us, as well as those spark points, those flashpoints where someone gets deplatformed. That's simply a sign of something that's much more deeply embedded within our institutions. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, yeah, the the deplatforming or whatever that happens after you know people feel safe enough to do that or whatever. And I don't want to use, you know, I don't want to call up that language, but it, it, it's like 
something you just mentioned, like it's not just the deplatforming, but it's it's that overall sense of how to talk. I think in the U.S. and Canada, it's something like sixty three percent of students are afraid to speak their mind. There was a study that just came out of New Zealand where that number is just—it's not as high as here, but it's relatively high. But it's things like that. It's also you know you're talking about okay, these people coming to positions of power, and it's again, it just you read this stuff, you look at it, and I look at the timeline of when the intersectional framework really took over. And so that took over in the early nineties. So the first people with masters and PhDs coming out, were coming out around the late nineties was at the same time, you know, so 2001, you had, uh, you know, Bush jr. Then the, the Iran and Iraq, uh, the, the Iraq invasion. And then you had, you know, Islamophobia, all this stuff. So, okay, we need to be helped. We need to find people who will help us fight against racism or policies against racism. Who do you go get? People who graduated with PhDs with this worldview. And they come in because they're the you know, quote unquote experts. And it just, they bring in more people that think like them. I'm not trying to put this down to like a conspiratorial thing. It's, you know, when I'm in a position of authority and I'm hiring someone, I'm going to hire someone. Yes, I work in a technical field and I'm going to need someone who knows this, their skills, but all things being equal, someone who thinks sort of like me or we have, or we're, we're on the same wavelength, I'm going to lean more towards that. And it's the same thing happened here. And it's, I mean, you know, I, I forget who wrote the paper, but the long march through the institutions and that's what it was. And it's, I mean, it's still going on and it's, you know, it's gotten to the point where, at least in North America, it's or you know, Canada, the United States, it's in K through twelve, and it's you know, it's colleges of education are taken over. I mean, like I said, med schools are being taken over. It's it's scary. Yeah, and I think that pretty much reflects here where, where we are on the on the evolution or the disintegration, depending on which way you want to call it. You know, I'm sure within a, we're within a year or two of you with our institutions, you know, schools, in, uh, universities, media, etc. So, I mean, how is it going for the sciences there? Like in Canada, again, we're talking about like, okay, my alma mater, they, there was a guy, I forget his last name. His first name is Pat. Um, he's South Asian. And he was asking for a grant. He works in chemistry. So he's asking for a grant and a research project in chemistry. And because he didn't fill out his DEI thing properly on how he was going to hire people, he was refused the grant because he was racist. Now, it's I'm not saying South Asians can't be racist because I've talked about that even in my family. Um, but it's just like the way they're doing it. It's, it's again, the Canadian government, uh, the Ministry of Immigration. If you look on their website, their definition of white privilege, it says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't have it in front of me, but if you think in ways that uphold white supremacy, you have white privilege, you know, regardless of your race. Like your skin color. I mean, it's. You know, it's and, and the issue there is, you know, the, the term white supremacy used to mean something, mm -hmm. you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I think most people knew what it was and they could, they had an image in their mind and a, and a paradigm that they could construct mm -hmm. around who these people were. But, you know, as with all of the concept creep that goes on, um, if you'd like, you know, keeping to time or, or showing up at work well dressed, your white supremacist adjacent or something. I mean, the 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 idea behind what's now called upholding white supremacy could be anything, and and it clearly refers to a, 
a whole lot of cultures and behaviours that aren't even white anyway, and therefore, you know, you've got internalised whiteness and mm. white white adjacent and et cetera. And they think, well, that's now completely circular. You know, there is absolutely no root to this idea such that the term white supremacy has any meaning anymore, uh, which is very dangerous because the thing is there are white supremacists out there. So if we say there's white supremacists nearly everywhere, that it distracts our attention from a genuinely disturbing minority and hate group. When if everybody who sort of appears white or appears to have a series of behaviours that are so crassly associated with white supremacy and, up, and upholding white values, uh, it, it's just meaningless but also dangerous at the same time. Yeah, I mean, the terms are being overused, and it's just first it was racist, then it was white supremacist, Nazi, whatever. I mean, these things, like you said, they've they've lost all meaning and they've lost all value. They they don't they don't serve a purpose. Like you know, when there is a real white supremacist coming along, and it just you want to point it out, you know, it's the boy who cried wolf, right? Like, is that really going on? It just because, frankly, I mean, take the white supremacist side to just like in the same vein, all the, like the, all the hoaxes for hate crimes and stuff. There was recently, it was two supporters of Mark Rubio who got beat up in Florida. Now, when I first read that, I'm like, okay, is this a right-wing version of Jesse Smollett? And I don't want to have to think like that. Florida is a fairly red state, as you just saw recently in the midterms. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, and I'm not saying that, that that's what happened. I'm not saying, but like, you know, that was my, one of my first reactions. It was like, it's coming down to a lot of these things, like where someone actually really did get hurt or something like that. And if your first reaction is, okay, well, you know, that person's faking, prove it to me. It's, you know, that's a breakdown there right there too. Yeah. And look, that's a good instance of how trust in institutions and how things are reported or how experts are put forward to speak with authority. When you start doubting what should be a pretty straightforward, you know, factual reporting or event. When you start doubting that, I think that shows that, you know, you, I, and many other people begin to start asking questions that, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, when we'd see a report of something or coverage of something or a, or a documentary about something or a piece in the news about something, you know, we, we'd nod our head and, and say, okay, well, they've obviously done their work. This is really compelling. Now there's that element of always asking, well, what, what evidence have they left out? What view are they pushing over another one? And now you could argue that's always happened. There's always been bias and you know, ideology, but I think now it's so bad that even in mainstream outlets and mainstream venerable institutions like universities, it becomes natural to ask, if you're a curious person and you're prepared to go down a rabbit hole, it becomes natural to ask, is that really a fair representation of the issues here? And it's going to, the the erosion of trust that will happen, it'll be a slow burn possibly, but the erosion of trust in our institutions and the follow-on effects of that is something to be really concerned about. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, also, okay, so the health thing too. Now, I, I don't want to, like, like some of these things, like the secondary debates are kind of pointless, but so whatever it was a, a couple of months ago is that European MEP who questioned people from Pfizer and they said, yeah, no, we never trusted, we never tested for transmission. People on one side, oh, they never tested, blah, 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 blah. And then all of, these other, all of a sudden, all these other people pulled out releases from 
Pfizer that said that that they never tested, but that's also disingenuous because you ha- like I mean at least in Canada you had our prime minister, you had our national health um you know like like she's Dr. Tam I think she's like the the health policy or whatever she was like the leading all the like the covid response nationally and they were saying get the vaccine because it will stop you it will stop transmission. Now whether Pfizer put that thing out or not you know what was being played up in the press what was being played up by the leaders and so I find like the counter arguments because okay there there's a lot of crazy on the you know people who are against the vaccines or you know there's there's a lot of crazy on both sides but when the people on the side are like okay you know what they were wrong they made some mistakes when you always frame it as well oh, well the information was there you just didn't look it's like like you'd mentioned earlier the average person doesn't have the time to go to the primary sources so when your government health officials come out and say this and when your leaders come out and say this like I said, you should expect reasonably that you can trust them in a situation like this. But now when it's coming out that you can't, again, it's just erosion. Now they're saying, oh, well, you have to get the you know Omicron booster now because you need it. But when someone asks, well, it was apparently only tested on eight mice. Can you get into that? Like, I mean, you know, we should have some reasonable amount of trust in our institutions. And it's just, I think they're like, they've done it to themselves to a certain extent. Absolutely. And I suppose asking why um, and the media's role in some of the coverage. I know that that idea of lockdown overreach has certainly been discussed here and there's been some sort of reports into that. Um, But also, I suppose, the coverage of COVID in the media and the so-called experts coming out provides an interesting case study. If people can pick over it very carefully and it has to be very nuanced, because giving fuel to nutters mm. is not good, mm. but also making sure that the general public can have pretty much, you know, 99.9% trust in our institutions that are basically determining how we can live our lives when it comes to something like a pandemic. I think that's really important and, and an investment that's very worthwhile. I always say the universities, whatever, I, you know, I brought up this, I use this example for like the university wants to have a chair in alchemy, go ahead. You know, I, I think it's a waste of time. I think it's a waste of money, but that alchemy chair should not then be dictating science protocols for the chemistry department, right? And it's the yeah, same it's thing. Yeah. But is there something going on in the universities, and at least in like Australia and New Zealand, where the administration is actually okay? Maybe we should take a look at what's being taught and how we're doing this, or is it still completely siloed off and? You know, like no one's paying attention to what anyone else is doing. I don't think there's many people in any positions of prominence within universities, say at my level or above, openly questioning that. Certainly happening happening within individuals within the academic community that might be worried about it. So the kinds of networks that you and I would both be familiar with, either attached to academia or not. But no, I think I think there's a curious um, there's a curious intersection of a whole lot of drivers that have led this to happen, none of which is necessarily malicious in themselves. So, you know, universities now have a very very much a focus on, on student-centred, you know, student is the client, making, making universities safe, welcoming, and all the rest of it. 
then you know universities are billion dollar or more institutions as far as their turnover so they're very big businesses they've got branding they've got marketing but they've also got an academic community that tends to be of a certain ideological perspective in some disciplines but increasingly as far as administration is concerned and there was that excellent study in the and uh, someone wrote about it in the states but i've gone blank on his name that the actual administrators within universities are even more narrow in their ideological perspectives and in the progressive left than academics are so if you combine all these things together high fees uh brutally competitive environment within the university sector a bit of a business model that drives a lot of it you wonder where the commitment to the foundational values of universities i.e truth or having discussions about truth at least you wonder where all that ends up and i think it's it's fair to say there hasn't been strategic level senior leadership discussions across the university sector about the potential risks to this to the university as a trusted institution that i think that's certainly not the case i don't i'm not seeing it and i don't think there's much appetite to have it either but when you talk about looking at the student as a client and you're selling them something like I'm sorry, but you know, if you okay, so you're Wesleyan in the United States and you're charging someone thirty, forty thousand dollars a year to get a gender studies degree, I'm sorry, like you should be sued for fraud. Like you did not teach this person anything. You gave them an absolute nonsensical worldview that's not fit for any purpose. These people don't even know how to do research properly. You know, they, they only know how to write and read gibberish. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, but that, that, that that's fraudulent. You know, like, well, yes, <laughs> except it creates its own business and economy, doesn't it? Yeah, but to you a know, point... the, these people, are, these people are getting jobs. These people are determined. These people are framing our view of reality. You know, so if you want to be a right out there relativist, you'd say, well, they have created a new worldview, haven't they? Um, so it's not like it, it, it might be a fraud in one way. I, I'd, I'd agree there's there's an element of intellectual fraudulence to the whole thing, but there's clearly an economy behind it that's working for them at the moment. Okay, but again, with that, like reality is going to hit them in, a, in the face in a certain way because so you've been having people coming out with gender studies degrees for a while now. You know, they've built up this industry, but there's only so many people they can employ. And once they employ those people, they'll be there for, you know, years, right? I mean, like you start your, you know, you're in the workforce for a few decades. So like there is going to be diminishing returns at one point or another. And again, these people are not going to be fit for purpose. It's the, I mean, all these people that went into tech and I'm like, I work in tech, um, you know, after a certain point, the market itself was glutted. You didn't need that many, right? Um, so I'm just kind of looking at it that way. The same thing. It's just. Yeah, I, I think you're being over optimistic. I think um, the idea that reality will eventually bite this, I don't think it's happening because they are creating an ecosystem for themselves for more work. Now, it could be long term, and I wrote about this in my. Um, that critique of postmodernism mm -hmm. in the academy. In the long term, I agree. 
in the sort of long evolutionary sense, we will have um, the the elite and the managerial classes in a, in a great state of tension and perhaps ill-equipped to actually guide us, guide communities, societies through the complexity of the world. But that's going to be, I, I still think, years away because they have created an entire economy, not just a political economy, not just an ideology, but they've created an economy around this that, that creates positions. I mean, how many positions have been created in in, um, in diversity, equity and inclusion into the sector? And it doesn't matter, but it might be bleeding the resources of the various sectors dry. It's creating more and more work, more and more career trajectories. So I'm a little bit more pessimistic in the sense of reality can be put off for a long time yeah and it, and it is it is and it has been and I, I think there's still you know years to go yet before thing entire fabrics of society potentially begin to to tear because we've got an elite managerial class and so-called experts that are peddling completely fraudulent bullshit i agree with you but reality can be held off for a long time. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's going to happen, you know, next year or anything. But I'm just saying like that they they are. Yeah, it could be ten years from now, and I don't. I, I think that would be far too long. I think the damage done would be too hard to really come back from. But it's it, like it's 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 also key Canada. So our government gave this guy uh, Maroof. Over the last six years, they've given him about six hundred thousand dollars. And the most recent thing was uh, he was hired, he's a Canadian citizen living in Lebanon. He was hired to teach the national broadcaster, the CBC. He was hired to give them anti-racism courses. The guy is a raging anti-Semite. And he was, I mean, all kinds of horrible tweets and stuff. And then he's like, oh, I was only talking about white supremacist Jews. And, you know, like that was his excuse. But our government knew about this for a month before they even addressed it it's ridiculous and it's so it's that's coming in but like now realities so th they have to kind of face up with it i mean like i'm not saying what the government's doing and how like the reaction the press to this was you know they're they're the press is being is molly coddling the government on this as far as i'm concerned but you know rea <clears throat> reality just kind of did hit them in the face right there so I'm, I'm just wondering if things like that can start happening to universities it's just I mean, one example of this was and i i wish they'd continued this was uh princeton there it was in 2020 their president put out a letter about how racist princeton was and the trump uh department of education said fine we're going to investigate you if you say you're racist we're going to investigate you which i think is a right move and then they let it go and i wish they'd continued that investigation it's like why are, okay so you're a racist thing you say you're a racist organization you get money from the government why should we keep funding you why do you say you're racist on what basis and lay it all out in the open yeah look i, I agree there will be moments sparks mm. that might or might not take off mm. or they might just sort of you know there'll be a very hasty retreat once people realize that oh we don't want to be drawing attention to this issue or this claim because if you're prepared to really pursue it it could actually be counterproductive to those goals um i just think that the you know that long march through the institution referred to has captured it's not just the institutions 
and the way they're trusted and the way they, they present things, but it's also all of the apparatus of the institution. So in other words, it's the it's the marketing, it's the compulsory programs that you have to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk about Dark Emu in a minute because I did some... Um, I did some equity and diversity training here that was mandatory. The, the trouble is, even even if reality comes out every so often, if you look at the people that are managing the levers and the resources of institutions, you know, billion, multi-billion dollar institutions like the big, big universities, particularly in the States there, they have incredible resources to then deal with these things, get consultants in, get media people in, there's a whole lot of stuff they can do. Now, whether it's hand-fisted or not, it's another matter. But I think that, yes, reality will poke its ugly head up every so often. But unless there's something sustained behind it, then institutions of all sorts, be it media, universities, government, whatever, they've got enormous resources to manage manage the problem. And it means that it just seems like pushing water uphill to try to get a really genuine intellectual evidence-based discussion on any of these really contentious things to be held in good faith pretty much on any platform other than, you know, podcasts and these alternatives. Yeah. I mean, okay. There's a lot to that too. Like I'll give you like two examples is one in Virginia uh, a couple of years ago when Youngkin got elected, you know, it was a couple of years ago or a year ago, Youngkin got it. So he's the new governor got elected and he got elected basically because he was pushing back on CRT based education and all the gender and queer theory coming into schools as well, K through 12. And, you know, he had a large bipartisan support all across the board. And it was mainly, you know, like Asian mums who got together and said, like, you're, you're screwing our children with all this stuff and you know the media right away like oh it's right wing and there's white supremacy and blah 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 and all that then you had that up here in canada with the trucker convoy which i had issues with the trucker convoy i thought there were certain things they did which they should not have done and which they should have been you know legally penalized for but this narrative i mean it's coming out now with the inquiry where the there was emails and texts from the government saying, oh, the we've got the media talking about how these are all extremists and we should run with this narrative. And, you know, reporters that actually went and spoke to them, like this one woman, um, forget her last name, Rupa, I forget her last name, but she's, you know, she's an Indian woman who lives in Ottawa and she was going around walking amongst the truckers every day. And, you know, she did some really great reporting from them. Other media were, you know, sitting in their apartments, ordering Uber Eats and making up stories. Like it was just. Yeah. And look, this show, that, that, and there's not only that, but I know you've had that um, grave scandal as well. Yeah. Over there has been covered. But I think what speaks to the heart of this is uh, certainly from journalists, mainstream, you know, a lot of journalists and the coverage of them and the way things are framed, it's enough. To, to demonstrate alignment to bad people or bad things to then not be interested in the facts of the matter. So if you can try to make the case that, you know, there's some you know, right wing or, or uh, some element of unhealthy perspectives within the truckers' convoy, 
then you don't need to talk anymore about all the potentially legitimate things held by the majority of the people in that. And that, that really characterises journalism and, unfortunately, a lot of academic research today. It's enough to try to find that supposedly core bad thing about a movement, about a perspective, uh, in its, you know, almost in its pure form. Oh, we need to show that the, the truckers' convoy was right-wing and bad. And we'll go and find that one or two or five or 10% of them that might or might not align to that. And then that's enough. We have demonstrated its badness. And therefore, we have demonstrated that we don't need to engage with the, the myriad of other issues associated with that, that event or that phenomenon. And that really characterizes, and that's the identity politics behind it, you know, that it, it's only enough now, it's deemed to be enough to demonstrate uh, what is the real core behind this? Is it white supremacy? Is it racism? Is it Islamophobia? And then you can dismiss an entire plethora of perspectives and complexities by simply saying, oh, we've found the root, the root to bad thing about this. And it's absolutely appalling, in my view. Okay. I just want to jump back to like a couple of things in the academy for a second, just so we've had, we've got this in Canada as well. And like, I used to live in Inuit communities and I saw it, you know, when I was like setting up some of the, the IT stuff and I was like talking about using indigenous knowledge for climate change and stuff like that. And then we've got, <clears throat> they want uh, indigenous ways of knowing to study physics and things like that. Now, <clears throat> Why won't science departments push back on that? Like, I, and I heard something along the same lines, I believe, out of New Zealand, where they wanted, you know, like Aboriginal ways of knowing to study something in science. I can't remember what it was. Um, yeah, that would be Maori ways of knowing. Yeah. In, in Australia, it would, be, it would have been called Aboriginal oh. ways of knowing. Yeah, and look, that's happening here. And we did touch on it even at that uh, ages ago when we had our first chat, when you invited me on your podcast. I think that one of the challenges is. Obviously, that deep-rooted uh, shame or guilt within the mainstream Western European, you know, colonising group that um, the the arrogance around a certain perspective and the dismissal of other perspectives, uh, you know, going back going back years, there's there's certainly a, a calling that out. The, the challenge is that the word science has become almost meaningless, as in science is any set of knowledge claims or any paradigm or, or any system of knowledge. And it's worth reminding us that science is actually an invention, for better or worse, I think better clearly, that science is not just Western European um, knowledge. It's the tools and the way knowledge claims are tested. It's all those things that come around that. It's all those things that make vaccines possible. It's all those things that make modern medicine possible. It's all those things that make, you know, travel around the world possible. Uh, it's not just another way of knowing. It's a particular approach to how we think we know things and how they can be tested. And there can be all kinds of flaws and faults and, you know, things that go wrong with that. But to call other knowledge systems science by putting the word indigenous in front of them is now characterizing the idea of science, the scientific method, the approach to testing, modeling, and all the rest of it, it completely disintegrates that into, oh, well, it's just another system of, of putting things together. And that's that's clearly in our everyday lived experience bullshit. 
we all rely on science mm. properly constructed all the time, which is why most of us are still alive because we've had various medical incidents. Oh. It's, it is not that there was an alternative there is an alternative science that we could have gone to instead if we just weren't racist to save our lives. So I think the, the way that the word science has just been degraded into, oh, it's just another system of knowledge attached to a certain, uh, a certain race, a certain community, a certain people over time, is that's the fundamentally, that's the fundamental misstep in all of this stuff around. We need to look at other ways of knowing. Let's say, yes, absolutely, we can, and there might be all kinds of insights and knowledge to be gained by looking at other communities, peoples, um, civilizations, whatever ways of looking at something, by all means. But to call it science is to reduce the entire apparatus of science to simply being another way of knowing attached to a certain, certain people. And that's, that's a, I think, a critical and terrible misstep in, in all of this debate. But, but again, like, why aren't, why isn't the chair of chemistry or biology or whatever saying, no, like, I'm not going to have this in my department? Like, well, we know why. Well, yeah. So that's a rhetorical question. We know why, because they don't want to be called, uh, even if they're uh, brown or Asian or, you know, whatever. If they say, no, we're not going to allow this, they'll be accused of being white adjacent, won't they? No, but at one point or other, I mean, like this is where this is my issue with this, and it's it's like th this part of it, and it, it was the same thing. It's like my biggest issue with the whole Trump administration was it's the wrong way to go about it. Like I, I realize your jobs and everything. Like you know, like I don't want to. Like, I realize part of that, but like if the science department as a whole at a university says you know what this is all bullshit this is not science this is not the scientific method this is not the methodology we use and if you have something prove it i mean i don't think any university would say okay you're all fired because that's suicide and i think you need something like that because again like when i say with the trump administration a lot of people when he got elected said oh the excesses of the left helped trump get elected but they never went back and looked at those excesses of the left. It was all Trump all the time. And it was, you know, I'm like, okay, you, you shared it. You stared at this shiny yellow orange thing and you let your institutions get even more corrupted. You got it to the point yeah. where, like I said, the CDC recommends vaccination by race because white older people are mainly white and white. They've already lived a privileged life. I mean, that was one of their rationalizations for why it should be done by race. Uh. Like it, it, there's a cowardice there in my, you know, and I'm, you know, sorry, I don't mean to be shitting on academia, but like there is a cowardice there. Like, it's like stand up at least for that. Like, you know, I, I agree. There's, there's, and, and this is one of the things that I, I find most uh, infuriating is that waving the social justice progressive flag can be done uh, in good faith by many people but it can also be a cover for utter cowardice. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I both know people who would probably agree with a lot of stuff we're saying, and I know people within the academy. And I'm not I'm not calling them out as cowards, by the way, because I know they are generally concerned about what will happen if they stick their necks out and say, no, we're not going to accept this supposed paradigm of, of Indigenous science in our science faculty because they will get absolutely hammered 
And as, as individuals, they will actually put their jobs and careers at risk, not necessarily in terms of just being fired, but in fact, they will become unemployable within the sector. It is that bad. I would, I would say hand on heart, it is that bad. So there is an there is a collective cowardice that um, that I think means that individual academics, be they scientists or non-scientists, uh, are paralysed with, with genuine fear, but it does create an entire community where I agree that cowardice is there and it's, it's particularly annoying that it's there in institutions where we provide supposedly jobs for life and we support free inquiry. But I think, you know, what I talk about in my essay with the, with the book Dark Emu is really trying to test that idea as the reason that a highly dubious piece of work making a highly dubious set of historical claims became probably the most well-known and supposedly authoritative view on Aboriginal agriculture pre-colonisation is not because people thought it was a good piece of work, but it's because many of those in the relevant disciplines, archaeologists, anthropologists, historians and others, simply didn't want to speak out because they didn't want to be accused of being racist and they wanted to be on the right side of history. So there are there are people out there that privately or in their special you know domain of trusted friends, they would say, this is not good, I don't agree with it. But you get this uh, overwhelming bubble, if you like, of growth around an idea because it hits the right it hits the right notes in terms of social justice, racial equity, uh, repairing the you know the ills of the past, etc. And there's not there's just not enough um, enough bravery for someone to put up their hand and say, yeah, but it's factually wrong. And I think the the example that we've got with Dark Emu in here in, in Australia, which is different from but culturally a bit like the 1619 project it became a juggernaut everybody that was progressive wanted to wave the flag and get on board and then there are those actual historians saying actually it's not it's it's a flawed project as far as its academic rigor is concerned um dark emu is to australia what the 1619 project was to america uh although at different scale it still sold quarter of a million books which in australia is a pretty you know a pretty mm. impressive thing. And it was because it took five, six or seven years for strong, dissonant, questioning voices to say, this is not a good piece of work. But it took that long, but it's not like everybody didn't know it was not a good piece of work. It's because everybody, including some very prominent people, academics, politicians and others, got on the bandwagon because they saw it as being a juggernaut that they could get involved in and it was on the right side of history. Whereas many people in the academic community, many of whom I know, were thinking this is not a good piece of work, but they were afraid to speak out, with one or two uh, very, very specific exceptions. Okay, on that, I talked about at one point, um, and I know like a lot of people, had, a bunch of people have mentioned about, so you have like, you know, the golden age of Islam, great thinkers and stuff came out of it, but then you have Al-Ghazali, and Al-Ghazali comes along and says, we don't need any new science. We don't need any new math. We don't need any new philosophy. And Al-Ghazali was a Sufi. So, you know, the whole point of Sufiness, uh, Sufism is everything is done for the glory of Allah and for Islam and the glory of Islam. So 
that's what he said you should be studying. I mean, he was so revered that he was given the title, the proof of Islam. And some people had said, if you lost the Quran and the Hadith, you could almost rebuild Islam with the writings of Al-Ghazali. So that, you know, that's how highly he was thought of. And because of him, the whole enterprise of fell out of favor so that when the Mongols did come in, sack Baghdad, and then their Mongols receded, they never, they didn't have the will to go and get that knowledge back. They didn't even know what questions to ask. They didn't even know what was like, for the most part, I'm not, you know, like, you know, generalizing here. I'm afraid of something like that happening, you know, quote unquote, in the West. Australia is kind of weird to talk about Australia and New Zealand as the West. That's why I say quote unquote. But yeah, I mean, if they're afraid to ask these questions and if they're afraid to speak out, the people they're teaching, they won't even bring up these questions to the students they're teaching. Their students won't even know that these questions exist. You've had this kind of stuff play out over and over and over again. Um, There was a thing in China, uh, it was a year of the pig. And it was while they were imprisoning Uyghurs, some of the people said, oh, well, we don't put out the pictures of the pig because of the Muslims in China and it's their heavenly ancestor. I mean, they, they don't have such a like lack of information that they're they're trying to be respectful at the same point. They're saying that the pig is the heavenly ancestor of the Muslims, which is, I mean, you know, it's kind of blasphemous right there. So it's like, that's what I'm trying to get at. Like, we are so dumbing ourselves down with this and you know if it's not stopped it's like that movie idiocracy like how long like i again i keep referring to the book uh uh the beginning of infinity i believe it's called by david deutsch and he talks about pockets of enlightenment throughout history you know and i don't want a future david deutsch writing about this last three four hundred year period as another pocket of enlightenment that got extinguished because we were too stupid Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, is this cyclic, or using the analogy of the bubble, which I've taken from uh, Jonathan Rauch's book, um, it doesn't mean to say if things will correct, or or you're right, there could be a whole generation or more, particularly those who have come through school in recent years into university, who may lose the passion for genuine curiosity which should sit behind all this but may also have been told for most of their time in educational institutions it is wrong of you it is it is a crime almost or is it hate to even be thinking those things so we're going to expunge that you know by asking questions about science by asking questions around uh, gender by asking questions around race you are actually participating in the promulgation of the very hate we're trying to challenge so it's there's the potential and the risk that there's a generation of students coming through into university that have had their Overton window so narrowed that even if things open up again, you know, more stuff on Twitter, more stuff on social media, more stuff, they, they're simply not equipped because they've been trained in this very religious-like mindset that, you know, isn't it? This is the thing around cults and about high control you know, religious movements, that even asking the question is the first crime against God or the first crime against the the authorities. And what we're getting in the sort of social justice, um, you know, pseudo-cult or proxy cult or whatever it is, is the idea that even asking the question, how many unarmed black men are shot by police in America? Let's actually go and look at the statistics. 
you know, is it um, Fryer's work yep. on that, I think. Even asking that question is to situate you as a white supremacist. <clears throat> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, therefore, you, you are being trained to not even ask the dissenting question, but not even to think the dissenting question. It's a thought crime. And that's, I think, particularly concerning and, and speaks to your point that even if things supposedly open up and, you know, and, and we do get somewhere here and there things discussed, is there, is there a generation of students coming through from school into university that have been taught that even thinking a dissenting idea is participating in the hate and the crimes of the past and all the rest of it? And if that's the case, we're in a, we're in a lot of strife. Yeah, I mean, I, again, there's an example I've used quite a bit was um, there's a school in New York City. And it's it's not so much not what you're thinking, but it's also conditioning you how to think. So there's a school in New York City. It was a, it was a private academy from K through 8. And they took their kids. So this happened in 2015. So they took the kids in third grade to eighth grade. Once a week, the kids were separated by racial affinity groups. All the non-white ones were told that they'd been oppressed and they'd been oppressed by whitey. Uh, and the, the group for white kids was told that they were oppressors. And so you're raising maladjusted little kids now. And then these kids, kids being kids, they went on the internet and said, what's good about my race? What's bad about my race? And they started talking, like, they just started spouting out ethno-nationalist garbage, you know, within a space of a couple of months. And I'm just... Saying like like what you were talking about, a they don't know what to ask, and they're being taught to repress these things. But if they have those thoughts, like uh, Helen Pluckrose talks about this quite a bit, and she she does it in reference to White Fragility, the book, and she said it's you know because you're told not to have these thoughts, and if you have these thoughts, you're racist, and all of a sudden you feel impure, and it's 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 like that religious aspect of it. I'm, I'm sinful. I'm a sinner. I've got you know I've got to atone. I've got to do penance. But you're doing this to little kids. These people, like these 18, 19 year olds who were doing a lot of these mass shootings recently, they were not well balanced. And I mean, look at the school they went through, like, like look at the schooling they went through and look at where these people were. Like that guy from Buffalo, he was in school in New York City, in New York State. New York State, since about 2016, has had this stuff, like this race based stuff, K through 12. Like, you know, so, and then 20, what was it 2021 or 2022 like i think it was 2021 he was 18 years old and he went and shot up a bunch of people in buffalo and look at the schooling he went through so not only are you taught what not to think you're told if you think that you're evil and you're sinful and i mean and then you're given all this other stuff that's creating you know in and out groups and it's creating conflict i don't want to sound like you know chicken little or anything here but you are setting up violent confrontations like I, i've been saying for a while the, the k-12 through system in canada and, you know parts of the united states and lots of part lots of canada is a school to extremism pipeline now like it's just setting kids up well if that's the case that's very troubling i'm, I'm not sure how we'd measure it here uh certainly australia doesn't have the gun violence problem um it does have its you know, share of, of uh, tensions, however. But I think, yeah, if we're bringing up a generation of kids to be taught that to fundamentally to ask questions and to seek evidence 
and to look around them and be curious about what's claimed is a thought crime, then we're setting these young people up for a very troubled time one way or the other. Yeah. And it's, I mean, again, I, okay, I don't have kids, so it's not like I'm sending my kids to school or anything, but for me, it's like selfish. When I'm retired, I want competent people managing my government pension. You know, I want competent doctors looking after me. I don't want the triage to be done. Oh, well, that's a brown person. So we have to find a brown doctor for them because otherwise they won't be able to relate. I mean, like this kind of stuff. So it's like you said, okay, A, they're they're not being taught to think, but B, they're they're being taught how to think in a very, very harmful way. Yep, I, I agree. But we're yet to see the full ramifications of this, what's been going on over the last 10, well, it's obviously more years, but it's really hit its hit its straps in the last 10 or so years. We're yet to see the long-term ramifications of that with a generation coming through. And it'll be interesting to see where there is pushback or dissent, what kind of impact that has, if obviously retrospectively, because it will take a long time to try to unwind what's happening in the schools for those that do have concern about some of those perspectives. And it's not obviously not just race. There's the gender issue as well <laughs> and religion. And, and there's a whole lot of things that are, they have their own distinctive characteristics, but they share the common basis um, that it makes it very difficult for a curious young person wanting to ask questions to find a space where they can actually put up their hand in a class or in a lecture or in an online forum or whatever and say, but hang on a minute, you know, there's this evidence over here or this data set here or this perspective from this well-regarded person there that actually challenges that. If the only response needed from those that are in the institutions is, well, even asking that, even thinking that is making this an unsafe environment for, you know, that brown person over there or that non-binary person over there. And it the we'll end up with a really insidious self-censorship as well as overt censorship. And I think we need to be concerned about both. Yeah, I mean, the self-censorship is... I mean, the overt censorship is bad enough, but the self-censorship, when you've gotten to the point where you don't need the overt censorship anymore because people know not to say it and they just keep quiet. I mean, that's, that's, that gets, that's gotten too far. Um, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. And we've been kind of pessimistic. Do you see any signs of like hope? Like, I mean, I see a couple of things in the U S I don't see much in Canada, like the university of Austin, that little um, thing that a few people like Peter Bergosian was part of it. And then, I, I am seeing something in the States as far as K through 12 goes, uh, especially like things like 1776 Unites. They've got a kind of a curriculum. Um, there's someone else, uh, Ian Rowe, who's starting up a series of charter schools and he wants to base them on like international baccalaureate schools. And so, you know, get back to like classical learning type of thing. Are you seeing any things like that? Any signs of things like that, like that kind of pushback in Australia and New Zealand, or is it, is it still kind of bleak? I can't speak too much for New Zealand, but there are things happening which you probably got wind of, mm. and it might be worth having uh, you know, having someone from the New Zealand community, like the heterodox community, on your show. But in Australia, I think there are there are little glimmers here and there. There are events going on. There's certain uh, there's networks of people finding each other. Um, 
I think there are little glimmers of hope in the case of the the book that I write about or the phenomenon of of the book Dark Emu. Yes, eventually, uh, you know, a really sound um, disconfirmation, if you will, of Dark Emu's thesis came out and it, and it got a, a reasonable amount of media coverage and it got people thinking again that, oh, maybe we were, we were too quick to jump on the bandwagon of something that looked progressive and was saying the right things, but in actual fact may well have been factually incorrect. The, the thing that worries me is it seems to take an enormous amount of effort to do that and often people who are at the end of their career, so they're saying, stuff it, I can't get cancelled anymore. Mm. They're pretty much semi-retired. Uh, it, or when it's a, a sort of mid-career scholar or a, a sort of mid-career journalist, whatever, it's often an act of singular bravery that, allow, that gets them to do something like that against considerable pushback and it makes life pretty unpleasant. And that's certainly the case of the, the colleagues that I know who have tried to do something to push back, maybe a public forum or a panel or something like that. You've got to ask, is it worth the effort? Effort Because it's damaging in your own community. Even if some people secretly agree with you, they might not want to be associated with you. So I, I think there are signs of hope, but it's, it's taking a lot of work from a very small handful of brave individuals to push back. The trajectory we're on is just not sustainable. And it's, you know, I, I see it leading nowhere good. One last thing on me from this is we're exporting this. So in 2015 in Afghanistan, so one, there was a young woman. She was, she, so there was a, an imam who was selling lockets with verses of the Quran in them and selling them as magic lockets. And so she denounced him. He called her out for burning pages of the Quran. A crowd chased her. Uh, a couple of police officers tried to pull her up on a roof, but the crowd caught her and they, now the thing, okay, like that, whatever it was 2015 in Afghanistan, you know, still, I mean, NATO was there, whatever, but like still very religious and the Taliban was, you know, still had some influence. But what had happened was the next day when the funeral was supposed to happen, a bunch of girls protected by a bunch of you know young men went and took her body and buried their, her themselves. And they said, you know, we're not going to let the mullahs do it. We're, and then like, it's a huge no-no in Islam for the women to even go to the cemetery, right? And especially to them to perform the burial. Um, so that happened. But then on the, the Western side, they opened up a PhD program at one of the universities in Kabul in gender studies. I mean, like these people don't need, you know, Gail Rubin and Judith Butler. They need John Milton and, and you know, and, and, and they need Milton and Mill. They don't need, you know, all this nonsense. And then you had like, there's one case, which was pretty appalling to me when I heard about it, it was an American captain walked in on an Afghan army commander, sodomizing a little boy. There's a practice in parts of Afghanistan and Pakistan called the Bacha Buzzi, where they take little young boys and they basically rape them instead of having, instead of sleeping with, you know, outside of marriage, which I, I don't understand the reasoning behind it. So when the captain put a stop to it, he was reprimanded and he was forced to apologize because, you know, he wasn't respecting the culture. So I'm like thinking like, here are these young women in Afghanistan and these young men who are going against really strict religious teachings and they're trying to fight back against it. And we're pushing this garbage down their throat. And I mean, it's, 
the what the gender ideology is doing in India to women's rights, uh, what post-colonialism is doing in North Africa to people pushing back on like Islamic theocracy. And then if you look at like in South Africa, when they started a black physics course, um, you know, like what the hell is black physics? I don't know. So like that, that's for me, that's we're damaging ourselves and we're spreading this ideology across the globe into developing nations. And so even where there might be a spark of someone trying to come out from the boot of, a, you know, an authoritarianism, we're sending this garbage to them to, you know, that does no help. I agree. And I think putting it, putting it crassly, it's another wave of colonization. Oh yeah. I mean, this colonial colonization that is so um, self-indulgently righteous from those peddling it, because at the end of the day, they don't really care about the poor and the oppressed and others in these communities, and they're not interested in the emancipatory possibilities of enlightenment, of science, of proper education. They just want a woke signal. And it's like, you know, when the Catholic Church was it went into, um, was it South America to recruit? Isn't that, wasn't that one of the largest areas of growth in the Catholic community. I might be wrong with my facts there, but the point's the same. Um, let's go and get a whole lot of naive people on board to believe this utter bullshit because we need to recruit. And it's really like a, a colonising thing. It's like a new missionary program that we need to get people on board with this. We're going to sell it to marginalised and oppressed people that have been living in you know, terrible, terrible situations. We're going to sell it as a mandatory um, Western university elite cutting-edge knowledge that will set you free, and it's utter bullshit, and it's going to have the opposite effect. But what's driving, again, it's this lack of curiosity about the economy of these things. Why are they doing it? Because it means you can set up a gender studies or a queer theory or a whatever, you know, Islamic studies department or whatever it happens to be, or a indigenous science program or whatever. It means we can now go out and colonise the rest of the world who have largely been bypassed from the benefits of a emancipatory um, Western science and all those opportunities, democracy, proper education for women, all those things, they're going to get bypassed because we've leapfrogged ahead with this utter nonsense. And it's going to potentially have really terrible effects um, because what it's going to do is form one of these un unholy alliances between oppressive cultures that have historically oppressed minorities, women, all the rest of it. And it's going to form an unholy alliance with supposedly progressive values coming out from our elite institutions, which is how so much of this stuff, you know, the lack of curiosity of why is gender studies being peddled in, in, a, in a continent where there's been historic oppression of women because of their biology? Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot. Uh, why why is there a lack of curiosity about that, and why is there a lack of curiosity about what's the impact? What can we see on the ground of the impact of that? Forget forget the goals. Even if you agree that the goals may or may not be right or whatever, let's look at the actual impact of gender ideology being taken to India, for example. Who is it helping? Who's been you know that just that fundamental lack of curiosity amongst our academics and our journalists? Is, I just find absolutely staggering. Because, again, we're not allowed to ask the question, uh, who's benefiting from this? Because when you're on a, a moral crusade and you've got that form of moral clarity, it basically means you will avoid fundamental questions around nefarious motives. 
just like the church has, mm. you know, for centuries of any organised religion. Because if you claim that your motives are pure and right and you've got that utter moral clarity about what you're doing, it makes it hard for people to say, hang on, why do I need to believe that? Let's go right back to fundamentals. What's the motivation for doing this? Who benefits from it? Follow the money, follow the ideology. Who's, who is building their empires? And the fact that people claim that it's on behalf of a great moral cause or progressive or whatever, there is no need to accept that as a point of departure. It's that very thing that should be questioned. Yep. And I mean, that's, that's exactly right. Like I joke around with, but when you're talking about the like colonization and stuff, I said, you know, these people are friends of victimhood. They're not friends of victims. You know, they they need that to prepare. Very nicely put. Yeah. Uh, whatever. I, I repurposed a Hitchens quote for that. <laughs> uh, anyway, Alan, it was great talking to you again. Thanks a lot. And uh, Awesome. Thanks for having me on, about. And uh, I'll put a link to... I'll put a link to the article. Actually, if you can send me a link to the article, I'll put that in the in the show because you sent me a, a screen capture of it. I'll put that in the show notes and I'll let people know how to get to hold of you. And thanks again. And thanks everyone for listening.